Good morning, Mount Calvary Church. We are grateful to be together, uh, God's people, in God's grace, as God's family. So we're thankful that we can come together and worship together seven days from Christmas, as you know. So it is an exciting season, and we do hope you are all well. Um, if you haven't heard, we've been talking about this month, our, some of our services that are coming up. We'll have uh, two Christmas Eve services at 4 and 5.30. We've been talking about the carols this month, and so picking a carol for the Christmas Eve service was easy. We will be talking about Silent Night. It's a candlelight service. Uh, we'd love for you to come, your family to come, your neighbors, but that's always a really special service, and so we would invite you to come back um, this Saturday for our Christmas Eve service. And then the, the next morning, on Christmas morning, a Sunday, we'll have one service at 1030. Uh, this, uh, on Sunday, that next Sunday, we'll talk about joy to the world. And we recognize it's a little different with Christmas following, falling on a Sunday morning, but we would invite you to come back out. Kids, come in your PJs if you want. Uh, casual service. Adults, don't come in your PJs, get dressed. But we will... We will be here on Sunday morning, Christmas morning, uh, and talking about joy to the world. Like I said, it's been a month of the carols, and hopefully it's been a meaningful month for you. It's been interesting for me, fascinating to, to look a little bit deeper in some of the history and the lyrics um, of the carols. Uh, one of the things that I've been doing this month unintentionally has been giving each week, each carol... A, like a personal superlative, like an opinion about the, the carol from my own perspective. And so if you remember the first week, way back in November, was uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I called it the most somber, most gloomy of the Christmas carols. It happens to also be my favorite of them all. The second week there, the first Sunday in December, we discussed O Holy Night, which I called the most loved, most cherished, yet most difficult to sing because of the high note. Then last week we discussed angels we have heard on high, and I called it the most technically difficult song to sing, the most breathy, winded Gloria that we have to sing with the 16 notes there at the end of the song as well, or in the chorus. Well, this week... Um, we are going to be singing at the end with our kids, discussing Away in the Manger. And I hope uh, this isn't offensive to you, but as I was thinking, as I was trying to think of a superlative or an opinion on this particular song, the superlative that kept coming back to me was, this is my least favorite carol there is. At least the original version, the classic away in the manger. And I hope that's not too harsh. Maybe you love the song, but the more I looked at the lyrics, the more I read them, the more I disliked them. It's too polished. It's too perfect. Little Lord Jesus in his sweet little head, asleep on the hay, as the verse goes, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. That's the line that gets me. What, what do you mean? What do you mean Jesus isn't crying? That's what babies do. My kids, what did they do as babies? They cried all the time. My sweet, 
daughter Caroline, who is really as sweet as they come now, as a baby, if a cow had awoken her, she would have screamed bloody murder. She cried and cried and cried. And in fact, when she was a toddler, so a little bit older, Caroline got into the habit of when she would hurt herself or was frightened by something that she would begin to cry, she would get so worked up with whatever it was. There was one time she, she stubbed her toe in our front door. I remember it. And so not an emergency, okay? Just a small little thing. Well, she would start to cry and cry and cry, and then she would start to hold her breath. She'd hold her breath to the point that she turned blue, and she would literally pass out right there over the smallest things. And after a couple of times of her doing this, we took her to the doctor and we said, what do we do? How? I mean, small little things are causing this. And the doctor looked at us and he said, do nothing. Don't make it a big deal. Downplay it. And I'm looking at the doctor like, who are you? What do you mean do nothing? She is blue in the face. Well, eventually she grew out of it. But that's not the picture we have of Jesus. In this song, he's not crying. He's not holding his breath. He is blessing other babies. He's close to their side in their, his tender care. And for me, it's too sensational, too sensitive. Jesus was a sweet baby. I'm sure he was. But you put a baby in front of a cow and he wakes them up and nine out of 10 babies cry. Jesus was a human he was a human baby. Hebrews 4 teaches us this. In every way he was like us, without sin. Jesus cried. Now, I'm mostly joking. I don't love the song, but there are many uh, renditions or remakes of the songs that I do love. Phil Wickham has a version of the song, Away in the Manger, and it's the version that our kids are going to sing here as we close the service. And I love this song. No longer is, is Jesus a little baby who doesn't cry, but in Phil Wickham's version, he is Lord and he is God and he is Savior and he is King and he is friend and his glory is forever and ever. And so I appreciate the song because it elevates Jesus. It's Christ exalting and we'll be blessed with our kiddos here at the end as we sing it. But so this morning... As we think about the song, The Way in the Manger, I want to look at the first verse. And often with the, with the song, this is the verse that goes unchanged in even some of the newer renditions. And so Phil Wickham, in his version, they sing this verse as well. So I'll read it, and then we'll pray. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the bright sky looked down where he lay, the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now this morning and we pray that as we study your word and as we look at Jesus, God, I pray that you would expand and you would deepen and you would widen our picture of who Jesus is. Help us, God, to look past what our culture says about Jesus and what we wish Jesus might be to the truth of your scripture. And so God, I pray that this morning as we gaze upon the depth and the beauty and the power of Jesus, God, I pray that 
we'd be so impacted by the truth of who your son, Jesus Christ, really is, is that we, that we would leave this room this morning changed, that our lives would be changed, that our goals would be changed and our dreams would be changed because of who you truly are. And so God, we ask for your help this morning. We need your spirit to speak to us and to encourage us and to convict us and to lead us. Without your spirit, God, we, we will miss your message this morning. And so we ask that you would do work in our hearts and our lives today. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So the song, Away in a Manger, first showed up in America in 1887 in a Lutheran songbook. I thought the name of the songbook was interesting. The name of the book was Dainty Songs for Little Lads and Lasses. This is where we found the song Away in a Manger. It wasn't called Away in a Manger. It was composed by James Murray. And when he composed it and put it together and put it in this songbook, the name of the song, you maybe know this, was Luther's, as in Martin Luther's, Cradle Hymn. And he told the story behind this song. And the way the story went was Martin Luther, the great father of the, of the, of the Reformation, wrote this song. And he didn't just write this song, but every night he would gather his kids into his room and he would sing them Luther's Cradle Hymn, or what we know as Away in a Manger. And the song spread all through Germany as the tale goes, German mothers rocking their children in their rocking chairs, gathering them together, singing Away in a Manger. And that's a, it's a great story, but it's not true. So that's how the story was told, but now that we look at the history of the song, we now know that there was no version of this song in Germany in the 1800s. And so now most say that the story was fabricated, it was made up back in the 18, late 1800s, written in America. We don't know who the author is, and so that's the story of the song. Um, Looking at this first verse, there's a lot that we could discuss this morning. We could discuss the dirty manger, the stars in the sky, the wise men who followed those stars, the sweet little head of Jesus, whatever that means. We could talk about all sorts of things, but we're not going to discuss the whole first verse this morning. But instead, I want to focus on the one title given twice to Jesus in this first verse that carries itself through the whole of the song. And that title for Jesus is the little Lord Jesus. The little Lord Jesus. I mean, it's an interesting name. We don't typically put little and Lord in describing some person. That's not what we typically say. If you're little, we don't typically associate you with being at the same time that you're little, also being Lord. I was little in middle school, a little fella, played football. I was not Lord of the football team. I was not Lord of anything other than the bench on the football team. Little and Lord don't typically go together when we're describing someone, yet this is the title that we have for Jesus here, Little Lord Jesus. Jesus is little, and Jesus is Lord, and at Christmas, we must remember both. And at Christmas, I think the default is, especially at Christmas, 
to, to, to focus more on the fact that Jesus is little. I mean, this is what we do at Christmas. Every picture, every image, every thought comes back to sweet little baby Jesus, born in the little town of Bethlehem. Jesus came little. We have our nativity sets. Jesus is this sweet little ceramic baby. And so this is the picture that we, we just gravitate towards at Christmas. This was what we discussed last week, too. Jesus came little, and he came for the little. But that's not all that Jesus is. At the same time, Jesus is also Lord. Jesus is Lord. Say that with me. Jesus is Lord. It's a powerful statement. And we can't get stuck on Jesus being just a little baby because we do Jesus a great disservice if we don't at the same time remember he is also Lord over and over again in the New Testament. 740 times. Jesus is Lord. And sometimes you hear the phrase, make Jesus your Lord. We don't make Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord. We don't make him Lord. We surrender to the truth that Jesus is Lord. And so we see it from the very beginning in the story of Jesus' birth. Luke 2, 11, For unto you is born this day the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Jesus, born as a baby, and at the same time, he is Christ the Lord. And so it's this, this morning, we thought about how Jesus is little and the significance of his coming little this morning. I want to focus on what does it mean that Jesus is Lord. And there's really, in my mind, no better place to go than the Gospel of Matthew. If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 8. This is the place to go, because I believe this is precisely what the gospel writer, Matthew, was trying to convince the Jewish people to believe. The whole gospel, telling his fellow Jewish people, Jesus is not just a teacher, and he is not just a carpenter, and he's not a little baby, but Matthew is seeking with all that he is to convince all people, Jesus is Lord. And so he organizes the gospel of Matthew in such a way to convince people this kind of authority that Jesus has. And to kind of see this preview of what Matthew is doing, he gives us a verse in chapter 4, verse 23. I'll put it on the screen. Kind of foreshadowing what Jesus is going to be doing in, as he organizes it in this gospel. He says, Jesus went through all throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So if you kind of focus on this verse for a moment, Matthew was saying there were two aspects of Jesus's ministry that authenticate him being Lord. Two different parts of this. First, the first part, that first phrase, Jesus teaches in the synagogue and proclaims the gospel with authority. And so what, what Matthew's going to do here, 
He's going to take these two aspects of, of Jesus' ministry, and he's going to break them down and show them how it's to be true. And so this first aspect, his teaching ministry, follows this verse, chapters 5 through 7. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, teaching, proclaiming the gospel. You get to the end of chapter 7, what do the people say? It's not on the screen. I'll read it to you. Verse 28 and 29 of chapter 7. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority. What was the response of the people from the teaching of Jesus? He is Lord. He has authority. But this wasn't the only side of the ministry of Jesus that we see in the Gospel of Matthew. That second phrase in verse 23, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. You get to chapter 8 in the Gospel, and he shifts from the teaching ministry of Jesus to now the healing and the miracle work of Jesus that he does to authenticate and to convince people that he is Lord, And so that's where we pick up in Matthew chapter 8. Now Matthew is seeking to persuade you that Jesus is Lord based on what he did. And so we pick that up in the first verse. And we see three stories. We're going to read them all back to back to back. Matthew wants to leave us with no doubt. Jesus is Lord over disease. Jesus is Lord over disease. Verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, a great crowd great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came, came to him and knelt before him saying, "Lord, if you will, you can make me clean." And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, "I will be clean." And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. I mean, if you have, in case there's any doubt, three stories back to back to back. Jesus is Lord. He is in complete control over. He has authority over all disease. And we see it at the beginning here with a leper. 
A story we talked about last week. Still incredible to consider this story. I mean, how many challenges a leper would have faced. I mean, this was an excruciating, painful, physical disease. To have leprosy would mean you, you, your nervous system has been attacked. You can't feel pain. You get infected easily. Your tissues and organs are completely de- degenerated. And so physically, this was pain. But it wasn't just physical. There's a religious, a spiritual component of this. What does the leper ask for of Jesus? He doesn't ask Jesus to heal him. He says, Jesus, make me clean. The religious implications of this disease, you you were unclean. You were unable to go to the temple and to worship. You were considered by the people cursed by God. And so this wasn't just physical. It was spiritual and it was social. You couldn't be around people, much less your family. This was as vivid of a picture that you could get of complete hopelessness, complete isolation. And this is the sense that we get of the leper here in Matthew chapter 8. Utter hopelessness. What does he do? He comes up to Jesus. Now that would have been stunning. With leprosy, you don't approach people. You don't go towards people. You touch anything of theirs and it must be burned. But out of complete desperation, the leper, twice we're told, comes up to Jesus. And what he says to Jesus, how he asks Jesus to help him, is a complete, it is a perfect masterclass for us as we consider how to bring to Jesus our own disease and our own cancer and our own illness. What does he say to Jesus? Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Because this is, we've got to consider this. This this is really important for us to consider because though we can put the words on the screen, Jesus is Lord over disease, what's the reality? We, we struggle with disease. How is that possibly true in our own experience today? This week, our church had a cancer diagnosis, completely unexpected. This week, we were in the emergency room with multiple trips. Immediately following the service today, I'm going to a funeral for a 50-something. We struggle with disease, and so to say... Jesus is Lord over disease. That, that, is, that is difficult. And we have to grapple with how is that true? And the leper teaches us today the perspective that we need to hold on to when we bring our disease to Jesus. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. You see, the leper gets the difference between God's sovereign power and God's sovereign will. The leper understands the difference between the sovereign power, the lordship of Jesus, and the difference between that with the sovereign will of Jesus. 
So in other words, he does not for one second, I believe, doubt the power and the lordship of Jesus over his leprosy. And nor should you over whatever it is that, that you struggle with. Jesus is able. He is strong enough. He is powerful, powerful enough. He is lord over cancer and anything you face. He has the ability. He is able to clear the CAT scan. What does he say? You can make me clean. No doubt about the lordship of Jesus over disease. But that's not the question. The question is, and the, the, with the answer that we don't, we don't know, is Jesus willing to heal? Is it his will for you to be healed? Because remember, there's a, there's a significant difference his sovereign power, and his sovereign will. He is always able to. The question is, is, is he, will he? Is he willing to? What's the answer here in Matthew 8? Three times in a row? Yes. And you've seen it in your own life, I'm sure. There are times where the answer is yes. But then you get to 2 Corinthians 12. Paul, the thorn in the flesh, and he is begging God, take it from me. And what is God's answer? No. No, no, Paul, you will learn to trust me and to depend on me. The answer is no. And so for us, we've got to wrestle with, but yet understand, even if it always isn't yes, Jesus is still Lord over all disease. And so what does he do with the leper? Jesus stretches out his hand and he touches him. He touches him. I mean, what, what a picture this is. It's beautiful. Jesus didn't have to touch him. You see that in the next story. He doesn't have to touch him. He touches him. And to touch him means I am now unclean. I've just touched a leper. But Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He's saying, I will identify with your sickness and I will take your sickness and I will heal you. And it is a beautiful picture here in Matthew 8 of exactly what Jesus is going to do on the cross for all of us. I will take their sin sickness on myself, and I will heal them. And that's the picture we have in this first story. But then he gives us a completely different picture in the second story. No longer is it a religious person, a Jew. Now it's a Gentile, a Roman centurion who would have been hated by the Jews. Hated, completely hated. You don't, you don't go to their house. Jesus is on the way to his house, which would have been unthinkable. He has this servant who is sick, and Jesus is, sounds like he's completely willing to go with him and to heal him. And then the centurion stops him. In verse 8, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word, and my servant will be here, healed. For I, too, am a man under what? Authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. I mean, what, what a picture we have here of faith. What, is, how, what does Jesus say about this Roman man's faith? This is the greatest faith I've seen in all of Israel. You talk about a superlative. I mean, what, what, a, what a great thing to be said of you. But the question for us is, why does Jesus say that about his faith? Like, what's so great about his faith in Jesus in that moment? 
Well, I think it's pretty clear. It's exactly what we're talking about. The Roman centurion understood and believed in his being and in his heart. Jesus is Lord. Jesus has complete authority. That was part of his faith. He says, I have authority over my men. Jesus has authority over this paralysis. He knew Jesus wasn't just a little baby. Jesus was God. He was Lord. He was over all of it. And then we get a third story. Another group of people that would have been shunned in this culture. A mother-in-law. And so there there can be no doubt. And we could talk more about that. We don't have a ton of time. But women were completely marginalized. They were on the outside. And now Jesus has healed a mother-in-law as well. No doubt, though. An ethnic outsider, a religious outsider, a marginalized woman. Jesus is Lord over disease. And it's not just disease. Jump down to 23 through 27. Another story where, where Matthew's, he's putting all this together. I mean, he's making, it's a persuasive argument. It's not just disease that Jesus is Lord over. He is also Lord over disaster. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, if you've heard a sermon on this passage, it usually goes, Jesus is ready to calm the storms of your life. Are you struggling with your job or your family or your friends or your marriage or money, friendship or heartache? Jesus can solve it. Now, and I'm not saying there's, there's not elements of truth to that, but that's not why Matthew puts this story where he puts it in Matthew chapter 8. He is filling out the picture for the audience of who Jesus is. He's not just Lord over disease. He's also Lord over disaster, physical, natural disaster. I mean, how would you feel on a boat, in a storm, and it feels like you're going to sink? I'll tell you how I will feel. I would be screaming. I would be screaming. I would be scared. I would be bothered. I wouldn't want to be in that situation. Our boat is going to sink, and we are going to drown to our death. This is like the worst nightmare. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus is sleeping. It's not a bother to him. I mean, do you know someone who can sleep through anything? The jackhammer's outside, and they're just, they're just sleeping. Don't point to them, but they're just sleeping through it all. Fireworks show. Jesus isn't bothered by the storm to the point that he can just sleep. Complete peace. How is that possible? Well, the storm was no bother to him. He rises. He rebukes the wind and the sea What do you rebuke? You rebuke things that you're in control of. And Jesus just says a few words, and he's just, he's in complete control of the whole scene. And it's really the question in verse 27 that I think is the key to understanding why Matthew put it in the story here in verse 27. What do the men ask? What sort of man is this? Like, who 
is this guy. He is Lord. That's who he is. You've seen it with the healings, and you've seen it with the storm. Jesus is Lord. The Greek word for Lord that's used all throughout the New Testament is the word kurios, supreme in authority. It's the word controller. Jesus is the controller. Complete control. He's in complete control. That's how he can sleep on the boat. He is in complete control of the situation. And it's not just disasters, and it's not just, it's not just disease, verses 28 through 34. Now, Jesus is Lord over demons. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now I heard of many pigs were feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. I mean, another picture of Jesus just being in complete control of a situation. What a a picture this, this puts in our minds of what was happening. Two violent, fierce, demon-possessed men kind of staking out this road. I mean, of course you don't want to go that way. I would go, I'd find another way home. I'm not going on that road. I mean, the men, the way they're described in verse 28, they are frightening. But then you compare the description of the men in verse 28 with the new description of the men in verse 29 and 31. Now, all of a sudden, they are in fear and they are begging I mean, the contrast between the fierceness of the men with the fear of the men, just another verse later. I mean, it just, it just comes off the pages so clearly. No longer are they fierce men. But they, are, they are begging little babies. Now, that's how they come off. Just begging Jesus. I mean, it, the text is pretty clear. These men have no authority about their situation. None. They have, they're in control. They are in no control. All they are left to do is to beg for Jesus to send them to the pigs. And what does Jesus do? I love this. One word. Go. Go. Like, I mean, if that doesn't show his power and his authority and the demons just utter powerlessness. I don't know what else would. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord over disease, and he is Lord over disasters. He's complete control of the demons. But that's not all we see in this chapter, and I'll I'll wrap it up with this. That's not all we see. Right in the middle of the chapter, as if Matthew wanted it to be the centerpiece of the entire argument he was making, you get verse 18. 
Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What do we see here? He's not just Lord over disease and disaster and demons. He is Lord over the people. He is Lord over you, and he is Lord over the disciples and those who follow him. He says, if you want to follow me, I must be your Lord. That just like I'm in complete control of the diseases and the demons and the disasters, I must be in complete control of your life. There's no let me first go but do something else. There's none of that when Jesus is Lord. And so that's the question for us. That's the question that's that's being begged in Matthew 8. Like Jesus commands disease, like Jesus commands disaster and demons, does Jesus command you? Is Jesus your Lord? Do you submit and surrender to him? Because the reality is, that the painful truth is, is he's not always, right? We give God lots of things. We surrender and obey in lots of ways. But there are things that we cling to that we we don't want to give him. We won't give you our weekends or our money or the principles for caring and forgiving people. Like, we, we will hold on to these. We will follow you in many ways, but, but with these things, I will hold on to. Luke 6, 46 says, Jesus is talking about the wise and the foolish builder. And he says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? If Jesus is Lord, we do what he says. It's simple. If we call Jesus Lord, that means we don't set the agenda. Like, we don't determine where and when and what. If he is Lord, like we love him being Lord over disease and disaster, we love that. But the moment we say, well, is he Lord over your life? It's a little bit more difficult. Why don't you do what I tell you? Not just lip service, not just a Christmas carol, life service. And so for us this morning, I think it's worthwhile to to pause and to spend some time in silent prayer asking these questions. What have I not surrendered to the Lord? What area of my life am I still, still trying to control? What area am I not willing to give to God? What area is Jesus not Lord over in my life? Because here's the truth. There is, and hear this, and I need to hear this. There is no better place than for Jesus to be the Lord of every single area of your life. No better place. He's got it. He knows what he's doing when he asks us to do or to think or to believe or to give. He he has it. 
There's no better place. It's, this shouldn't, it's painful in a sense, but it should be tremendously peaceful to not try to be the Lord of, of different things in your life, to let him. And so we're going to close a few minutes of prayer, confessing, committing, surrendering. And then when we're done closing, our kids are going to come and they're going to continue to, to teach this message through song. Away in a manger. Jesus is little. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The stars in the sky look down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. But he is also Lord. They'll sing the dawn of salvation beginning to break. I love thee, Lord Jesus, O gift from above, the King of heavens forever with us. I worship you, Jesus, for all of my days. The highest of praises be unto your name, my God and my Savior and my King and my friend.